My favorite lines from The Princess Bride, I don't think that word means what you think it means. My wife and I were in a restaurant recently, and we had an experience that many of you have had. A young man came to the table, and he was our waiter for the night, and he said, um, hi, my name is Josh. I'll be taking care of you. He said, well, would you like to maybe a starter to get yourself going, a glass of wine, perhaps a starter? And uh, I said, no, just a glass of water. Joey said, same for me. He said, that's awesome. And then later on, I ordered a, um, a salmon, to which he said, awesome. <laughs> Julie ordered a salad, which also was awesome. <laughs> I don't think he knew what that word meant. I'm not so sure he knew what it meant. It is not just out there. We have it too. The word literal and figurative is amazing uh, here. I, I had a student who said to me, no joke, he said, I'm taking David Bowers Matthews IBS class, and every day he's literally blowing my mind. <laughs> I hope he means figuratively blowing his mind. But whether we get words like awesome or literally just right, actually, at the end of the day, don't really matter that much. But let me ask you this question. What is a Christian? What does that word mean? That's a word we really can't get wrong. We got to get that one right. And I think in some ways, it's a word which is challenging. It's not always easy to answer it. And there was a Pew research done recently where they uh, ask a thousand men and women, all of whom self-declare to be Christians, to ask them, what is a Christian? A thousand Christians answered the survey. And the biggest response was that we are people who believe in God. Great. Um, Muslims, uh, Jews, uh, Hindus, okay, we're, we're now in that, okay, we're all supposed to believe in God. It's not wrong, it's just, could more be said? There were those who said, a Christian is someone who is forgiving or honest, which is wonderful they said that. One responder even said that being a Christian was dressing modestly. Wow, they really nailed it, didn't they? Um, others cited things like those who read the Bible, those who pray, those who attend church, those who serve the poor. All, again, wonderful responses in various ways. 11% of the responders uh, mentioned Jesus Christ somewhere in their response. Apparently, it's either not easy question to answer or question, a question of Christians themselves had not really sufficiently thought about or answered. Maybe it's like looking at a complex quilt that represents the word Christian, and there are many different squares to it, and people are pointing out different squares. Maybe that's it. Maybe we just don't really know. What is it? Sometimes we confuse when we're asked to define things like this. We confuse often in these answers. There is the consequences of something. What are the consequences of being a Christian versus what it is, what is its essence, is not easy. We often confuse and wonder about whether Christianity is a bounded set or is it a centered set. In other words, is it something that 
you cross a boundary and you're in, to, you're in something. To be a Christian means that you belong to something and you're either in it or out of it. And it's a very clearly defined thing. Or is it a center? We're centered on Christ and people are, it's a journey. People are moving towards something. What is it? It's very difficult. Is it a set of beliefs? Is it a journey? Is it an orientation? Is it a life relationship? Uh, it is clear that Christians aren't sure about it, actually, but it's certainly clear to me that those of us in this room need to get this right, or at least think about it better. After all, whatever we are called, whether it be the word Christian or saints or believers or people of the way or the elect or the more contemporary phrase, a Christ follower, all of that is fine. Whatever we call ourselves, we need to understand it's a term that is, it's a, we are a group that is biblically defined in various ways. Our, our identity has canonical boundaries to it. It's a word framed by history. After all, in Acts eleven twenty six, 26, uh, we're told that, uh, the, uh, that those were, disciples are first called Christians at Antioch. So in the New Testament, this term is bird, and we find the lips of Luke, the lips of Peter, and the lips even of King Agrippa who seems to know this term, and it's kind of stuck. And that's mostly what we're called all over the world. So my question to you today is, how would you define the word? The Pew researcher called you up. What would you say? I don't know what you would say. I'm sure it would be literally awesome and would blow my mind. The good news, though, is that our text today, from Romans 6, 1 to, 1 to 14, Paul answers the question, at least in part, what is a Christian? So we do have a little help here. And it's important to notice that Paul is addressing here in this text people who are Christians. This is a, this is a conversation, an internal conversation. We're not actually talking about what do people out there think about us or call it. That's another discussion, another day. I mean, in the first century, they thought we were cannibals. They thought we were politically subversive. They thought we were, you know, heretics, etc. All of that was there. But Paul isn't so much concerned about that as he is us. What, how do we understand the word Christian? What does it mean? What do we mean when we say the word Christian or I am a Christian or we are Christians? What does this mean? It's an internal battle. Now, that last week or two weeks ago, there was a, a gathering in Wheaton, Illinois, and, and of course Wheaton, to discuss what is a Christian. Uh, and it was mostly concerned with how the media portrays the phrase evangelical Christian, et cetera. It's a very, very good discussion. It's a very important one. I was a part of those conversations. But it's actually, it, was, it never, ever raised the question at all that the New Testament raises, which is how do we understand the term? Because the media will always get it wrong. I mean, like always. It's not like only the last 10 years. I mean, they've always got it wrong. They don't know who we are, and I, and I can live with that. But the main issue, we have, we have to know who we are first. And then we can have a better conversation about the other. So Paul enters into this hypothetical dialogue, and Paul is very, very forceful here. This is a very forceful text. I'm not sure how to hear that, you know, explain that, but there are things in here that are, are reveal that this is a very forceful thing in the, in the way the language unfolds here. Paul is not saying to them, well, you know, it's just a matter of perspective. He's not saying that. 
Paul is, says to them, in fact, he actually addresses in this text and in the larger uh, section in Romans, he's addressing really three misperceptions of the word Christian. That's a good place to start. Let's at least start there. There are at least three things that Paul is saying we are not. So let's at least explore those three. First, I would say uh, Paul and the antinomium or the libertine. This is in verse 1. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Meganoita. This is like that. This is the closest thing Paul comes to cursing. No way. No. Niet. Nien. Nada. I mean, this is it. No way. We are not going to sin that grace may abound. Now, he's addressing a particular problem. He's already addressed it earlier in, uh, in chapter 3, where he's looking at people who believe, basically, the Antinomian line, the, the all grace, no law line. This is their kind of thinking. They say this, okay, um, we cannot keep the law. This was, this was their narrative. So we're all declared sinners, okay? We are thankfully saved only by God's grace, we, thirdly, cannot help sinning, but thankfully, the more we sin, the more grace is bestowed. That's essentially the antinomian line. In its crassest form, it goes like this. We love sinning. God loves forgiving. It's a marriage made in heaven. <laughs> Paul says, no! While we do believe that we are justified through the righteousness of Christ and we believe that we are given alien righteousness, that is not our settled state. If there ever was something at the core of Wesleyan theology, it's this. But it's not Wesleyan theology. We just kind of highlighted it. This is scriptural Christianity. Praise God just as I am without one plea. That's exactly how we come to Christ. But just because you, you come as you am, but you don't stay the way you am right? We are transformed by the gospel. And Paul says in verse 3, do you not know that all of us that are baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Dead people cannot sin. That is the only hope for any of us. You cannot limp your way out of this. The only hope is death. As now, as much as the church debated about circumcision, and of course you know there are so many debates about whether Greeks or Jews all should be circumcised or not, all of that. They debated all that endlessly, but they never actually debated whether Christians should all be baptized, right? It was all understood. That was something that marked the Christian identity. We are all baptized, and the central symbol of it here, in Romans 6 at least, is that of death. Now, N.T. Wright, in his book, The New Testament People of God, makes the very helpful point that baptism is that which God does to us. Now, we don't, don't actually think about it that way. In my experience, at least as a pastor, I found that most of the church mainly saw baptism as something that we do, right? We do this before God, a sign of consecration to God. You know, this is like, uh, you know... Uh, you know, no turning back, no turning back, you know, that kind of thing. We are making ourselves present before God. And of course, it is that. It is certainly no less than that. But it's more than that. It's also what God does to us. So Wright makes the point that when Christ comes out of Egypt as a, as a baby, <clears throat> eventually crosses the, Red, the Jordan River, 
He is, of course, obviously, transparently, he's recapitulating the, the history of Israel. So Christ is drawing up into himself the whole history of Israel. And so when we get baptized, we draw up into ourselves through his divine action, the whole history of Israel and the history of Jesus into ourselves. That means we draw up into ourselves his death and resurrection, right? Now that's a very powerful kind of idea about baptism. Now in the, in the modern church, I don't know what your church looks like, but if you, of course Methodist churches, you have a little um, like font, you know, and you, you dip and all that would be, okay, okay. It's like someone taking someone, we're going to bury you now, and they sprinkle a little dirt over your head. Okay, okay, we get it. It's not, it's not a matter of how much water is used and all that, but if you really want to be baptized, just go for it. You know, okay, that's the way to do it, okay? So, <laughs> just a little side note there. Okay, we're in Romans 6, okay? Romans 6, go ahead, go for it. So if you go to a church, if you go to a church that has a baptistry, right? Now, I know you're Methodist, so I need to ask the question, how many of you have been to a church or anywhere in the world actually has a baptistry? Okay, okay, great. Wow. Praise the Lord. All right. So if you go to a typical church today, it is a, uh, it's usually up. It's up, right? You see up. Some of them are really high up, but they're all generally up. The idea is they want you to see people baptized. It's actually not a bad architectural design. I'm not against it or anything, but it's just not the way you find it in the ancient world. In the ancient world, they actually construct them down underneath the ground. So if you see pictures of them, and they, they traditionally had three steps down, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinitarian, everything's Trinitarian, and you go down into the, like this, one, two, three, pretend you're up here, and so you often don't, can barely see the person's head, actually, and then they're baptized, so they're, they're like down in the grave, right? It recapitulates the grave theme. Because no one gets buried up in the air. They get buried down in the ground, right? So you literally get baptized down into the ground. And what they do is they baptize you. Because you can't see them, they they put the white surplus on you. And you come out of the waters of baptism in your white surplus. You'd never forget that. I mean, that is an amazing visual sign of death and resurrection. It's exactly what Paul is trying to convey here. By the way, if you've been sprinkled... Praise the Lord for that. No problem. I'm just saying the imagery of death and resurrection is a very powerful one. So brothers and sisters, a Christian is someone who has been, they have been killed, they've been dead. Their old self is dead, been raised in Christ. You're not only those who have been saved from the penalty of sin, you've been saved from the power of sin. Amen? That's the whole point. Now if you go and you buy an iPhone, for example, you can purchase a very nice, like a little, uh, you know, USB drive iFlash for your iPhone. It's a really nice accessory, but it's just that. It's an option. If you purchase an iPod, you can buy little very neat charging stations for your iPod, but they're not required. It's just an accessory. If you purchase an iPad, you can get a iPen to go with that. It's an accessory. Now, those accessories are wonderful, but we often think that that's what the holy life is like, that there's being a Christian, and then there's the accessory. Oh, if you're really committed, you'll do this and this and this. Paul says, no, no. The holy life is the Christian life. 
We are those who have been set apart to be made holy through the power of the gospel. We are not just those who are 15% better than the world. We, we sin 15% less, thank you. Really? Isn't it more than that? I mean, what about, are we just a rejuvenated Adam? Are we like God's done like a paper and paint job on us? Really? Are we just marginally more moral than the world? No, Paul talks about, his phrase is, new creation. So the antinomium, the idea that we are not, that God is Christ, not the new lawgiver, and does not actually burn the law deeper into our lives, is not part of the Christian vision of what a Christian is. We are those who are dead to sin. Now Paul also addresses what we would call today the minimalist. The minimalist, of course, is all around us. This is the one who asks the question, what is the least one has to do to become a Christian? What is the actual minimum? The doorway to faith, the whole glorious gospel of, of salvation has all been kind of reduced down to reductionistic. What does it take to get someone into the pew or the chair and call them Christians? It's often based on how many numbers are in our churches on Sunday morning. And to use our language here at Asbury, it's a total focus on the first half of the gospel, justification, a total neglect of the second half of the gospel, justification, discipleship, and sanctification. The gospel does not separate these two. It's one whole thing. It is wrong to get as many people as possible to acknowledge as superficially as allowable a gospel that is theologically unsustainable. It's wrong. And part of your job is to go out and proclaim the full gospel. So in verse 6, Paul says, We know that our old self has been crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be brought to nothing so we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We have been crucified with Christ. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to say your old self has been crucified? Now the King James uh, has the, old, the phrase the old man. That was actually borrowed from Tyndale. It goes way back. But all the newer translations translated the old self, which is a good translation. The, the, the real contemporary ones say things like uh, the common English Bible, the person we used to be. All right? But what does it mean? What is it that's being crucified? Well, Paul used this, this phrase two other places in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. He talks about putting off the old self, remember? Putting on the new self, both in Colossians and Ephesians. Now, this has led to the dominance of kind of a two-nature theology, which is nothing wrong with that, that we have a sin nature and we have a divinely a spirit-infused nature under the gospel, and we need to see that uh, old nature gradually diminish and as the, the divine nature, as a spirit-filled life, takes over. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a theological distinction, isn't it, of course? It's an abstract thing. But Paul does not see our old lives as, as a, just simply an ontological bit inside of you that must be eradicated. It's not that we deny the, nature, the idea of a sin nature, but the point is Paul is talking about people, you and me as persons before God. And what he is saying is, is that this comes right out of the heels of Romans 5. We have been identified with the old Adam, with the, with the first Adam. We, we are in relationship with Adam we have a propensity towards sinning. 
we have a relational connection to sin. All of that must die, must be put to death. This is what, why Colossians talks about us being seated with Christ in heavenly realms. See, it's about being with Christ, being united to his new life. And also in Ephesians, we are now walking with Christ and walking with one another in community. So he's implying that this new self isn't just something that happens inside of you, it happens inside of us as a community of believers. He's renewing us. So it's a much, much more um, physicality thing than perhaps we've thought about or envisioned it. So Christ addresses you as a reprobate person, a sinner, and says, you cannot receive the new life unless you die. But then he addresses you as a child of God and says, dead people cannot receive the promises of God, cannot receive the inheritance of God. And so as a child of promise, he raised you to life in the gospel through Christ and his resurrection, and he allows us to receive all the promises of God. That means that becoming a Christian is not just changing your beliefs, it's changing your whole life. Amen? That's so much part of what Paul is arguing for here. At root, it's a relational point. Our servitude to Adam must be irrevocably crucified, and now we're with Christ. Now, I know from being a Christian for a lot of decades that sometimes, even though I have been crucified with Christ, I sometimes hear the voice of the old Adam. You know, he still calls me to be in relationship with him. He still calls me. I still hear the voice calling me to be a part of that old life. And I have to be reminded that I've been crucified. It's dead. I've made alive in Christ. The, the, the Wesleyans never confused uh, 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 entire sanctification with uh, sinless perfection. We, we understand this is a process where God transforms us, but it's a process that involves a death and resurrection. Now, the third and final danger is actually not directly in this text, but it's Paul and the legalist. He really brings this out as he gets closer to chapter 8. He's rejected the antinomium that makes false ideas about grace and makes holiness an optional add-on. He's dispelled the minimalist who has turned salvation to a transactional abstraction about sins being forgiven rather than a whole new transformational relationship with Jesus Christ. And now he will eventually reject the legalist who tries to make holiness a matter of human effort. Now there are those who are so concerned against the antinomian problem that they double down on the law, you know, we can do it now that we are in Christ. But actually, Romans 6 leads to Romans 7 as well, where we cannot do this. We cannot do it without the infusion and power of the Holy Spirit. Now next fall, I'm going to develop a series of sermons which build upon this point, because we don't have time to look at it today, but how you can be filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit to live the new life in Jesus Christ. It's a Trinitarian work of God, we mostly live in a binatarian world. And so we are really want to really help you to see the power of what it means to have the Holy Spirit empower you to live as one raised with Christ. Okay? That's where we want to be. We want to get to that point. But for now, we want to recognize we're in a place where we are looking around the surrounding church culture 
And in some ways, we're recapitulating the Reformation 16th century and the uh, Western revivals in the 18th century. The 16th century, if you look at what actually happened in the, in the life of the church, most of the, the vast majority of the people who received the gospel and heard the gospel in the 16th century and became joyful, amazing followers of Christ were people who already considered themselves to be Christians, right? So the Reformation was in part the gradual realization of hundreds of thousands of people that they actually weren't Christians according to the biblical definition and they became more fully Christian. Wesley, the same way. A great percentage of the people that Wesley addressed the gospel to were people who already considered themselves Christians who had to be brought into focus what it really meant to be a Christian. So we have talked endlessly in our day, and it's important, by the way, a really important conversation, how should we address the gospel to the unbelieving world around us? And because that's such a growing phenomena, we totally get that, and we're all over that, and it's wonderful, and you'd be commended for that. But we should not neglect the other challenge, was that when someone comes into our midst and someone joins our ranks and becomes a Christian, we need to be very clear what it means to be a Christian. This is the point that's before us. So this week, perhaps your phone will ring and it will be the Pew Foundation calling you. They didn't release the thousand names that they talked to, but you know, I just wish they had all 1,000 would have been Asbarians. Wouldn't have been great. Your phone rings, or they stop you outside of church one day. I'm a Pew researcher. By any chance, are you a Christian? Yes, I am, you say. Wonderful. Would you be willing to answer a question for us? Sure. What is it? And they ask you this. What is a Christian? Now, I'm not sure what you'll say, but perhaps you'll say something like this. A Christian is someone who is dead to sin, made fully alive in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection and by the power of the Holy Spirit. That would definitely blow the mind of the pre-worship researcher. (laughs) Boy, wouldn't it be great? I would just love it if our church could just come out with a definition. I mean, you may have, you probably couldn't improve it, right? It's not that definition, but a definition like that that says up front, we are full-throated Because the Apostle Paul has said to us what it is to be a Christian. What we don't want is someone to pull us aside and say, brother, sister, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Amen.